Hi, I'm Maria Theoharis or Velosos on social media. Welcome back to Say Over 50 podcast on Soul Organized Style. Grab a cuppa and relax with us. I begin today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast and pay respects to the elders past and present. Many thanks for the ongoing support from the Patreon community for Soul Organized Style podcast. Your ongoing support every month keeps me developing these podcasts so you and our listeners can hear from sellers from all walks of life. Thanks for joining us on Sober 50 Podcast. Sober 50 intersects with all communities. We're a community that is so over ageism. The Sober 50 community is positively leading, being visible in the selling online world. As you may have noticed, Instagram has now removed the recent hashtag search function. So perhaps you may have noticed that the tags are no longer in chronological order. The Cyber 50 strength has been in getting to know our community through checking the tag daily. Now, without being able to see your most recent sewing under hashtag Cyber 50, it's quite infuriating. Instagram is not receptive to the outcry, so we're instigating a new plan to find you. For June, Use hashtag SoOver50June. We'll find you fast and can like and comment on your posts every day again as the volume will be lower and the hashtag will be running only for 30 days or so. Still use hashtag Sober50 because we want to keep our community growing. With over 235,000 posts and at the moment over 47,000 followers, it's where our strength lies. We'd also appreciate you sharing this in your stories to spread the message from Sober 50. And remember, for the month of June, use hashtag SoOver50June with hashtag SoOver50. More details in July. On today's SoOver50 podcast, our guest is Sheila of Sheila Sews Her Clothes. She's here today as today's Sober 50 podcast guest. Regular listeners will know that she's been on the podcast before. So thank you for inviting me into your home again today, Sheila. Oh, thanks for having me again, Maria. It's such a pleasure. Sheila, is it chilly where you live right now? Yes. As you know, we're in the Southern Hemisphere and we've just finished Me Made May and I've been looking at all these warm summer things, but I've been in layers because our days have been as cold as, oh gosh, we've gone down to about eight degrees, which is 46 degrees Fahrenheit. Yep. I think Canberra says they're a little chillier than us, but Hobart also has something called the roaring 40s because our latitude is 42 degrees and it's something to do with makes it really windy. So we get this really wild wind. Our days can be not too bad, gets a little warmer, and then we get this chill wind from Antarctica. So everyone here wears layers and we are now truly in winter. So yes, it's cold. (laughs) For people who have never been to Tasmania, boats that go down to the Antarctic, they launch from Hobart, which is in Tasmania. Yeah. And the wind is chilly. Sheila, can you tell us why you've been sewing with blankets? You can tell from my accent. I came to Hobart in 1986. And when I first came here, there were these wool blankets on everyone's bed. And we didn't have electric blankets and we didn't have dunas. They were just too expensive. So I remember having two wool blankets, plaid blankets, and a hot water bottle in the bed. And they were so colorful, but they were also kind of heavy and a little bit itchy. 
when dunas became affordable, they went to the shed or went to the op shops and, and no one really thought about them anymore. But about five years ago, I walked into a little children's store that she commissioned a lot of local sewists and things to make things. And I saw these adorable twig and tail little vests. They're called the Pathfinder vest. And what they had done was they had taken the retro fabric of between the 50s and the 70s, probably more 60s, 70s, because they're a bit brighter. And they made these vests and then lined it in lovely, colorful cotton and put these little toggle buttons on them. And I thought they looked so great. And I started to fixate on it. And I thought, gee, I'd really like to wear that as a coat. And then I, it sort of um, made me feel happy. And, you know, I remembered my happy times when I first came here and I thought I could wear a bit of history. So I started getting excited about a project. And we'll come back to the whole toggles on the jacket later, I think, based on your recent blankets jacket that you've done. I know that you're passionate about the blankets. Yeah. You've been doing some research about it as well. I'm actually quite passionate about any fabric that has history. And then I really do like to find out more about the history. I've done a few different things. The first thing I did was I did just an Instagram search. I think I hashtagged blanket coats. And I started to look at the different things that people were creating with the coats and get some different ideas of what would be created because I sort of felt that if I was going to make something, I wanted to make sure that it was wearable because this is an old blanket. And then I sort of went into ready to wear. I didn't find too much there, but I did find, and that was again through Instagram, I found a business called Thelma and Louise and had a chat with someone named Jen online. And she used to work at the Waverly Mills. Oh, yeah, it was so cool. She had some adult coats, but she told me that, you know, the big business was for kids. Her adult coats had kind of that peacoat style, which I see quite a lot of. And Maria, I don't know if you know, you know, Katie makes a dress. Yes. And do you remember that thing she did last year where she made about 20 coats out of retro blankets? And they were all great. Oh, they were amazing. And she even sourced retro buttons. And then she put them online for sale. And I think they sold out in minutes. Mm. That was another thing that I stored in my file to get ideas. That was good. And then I did a little bit of research with um, for ideas in Pinterest. But I came across a site called Blanket Fever. And that was really a gold mine because she sold a lot of her blankets to the Australian Wool Museum. Wow. So people can find them there. Yep. We'll talk about that a little later, but that's when I started doing the serious research. What I started to do, and then I started to think about that. I thought, yeah, I think I will wear it. And where do I source it? And then I started asking my friends and looking at op shops because they're kind of hard to find now. They've gotten pretty popular. And so I did find some, and I also was given an orange one by a dear friend. And guess which one I haven't made, Maria? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the orange one? Yeah, because I'm like chicken. So I've made like three things with it now. And I'm like, you know how it is. And I'm saving the orange one because I want to make it so good because it's so special. You raised the bar, Sheila. My last project will probably be that orange one. Do you do that too? Takes a while to sew the precious. As a lot of people know, you've got to use the precious from time to time so that you know your skills are really good. Yeah. And it's kind of a responsibility because these are blankets that are a huge part of Australian history. And, you know, a lot of them are 
know, 50 years old. So you just want to make sure that you use every bit of it and that you make something that's really wearable and respects the culture and the memories of the fabric. Yeah. And even if people find those blankets and they've got holes in them and they've been used quite a bit, use them, just use them. Absolutely. I think Katie makes dress talked a lot about the repairs that she did to the holes because you can easily do some hand stitching to them and you know, you can put a little patch there because they're supposed to be worn looking. If people follow Mending Mayhem, they'll find lots of ways to mend. And then there's Trisha, who is Morisseau's, and Sue Stoney. So there's a lot of people in the Cyber 50 community, you know, can be used as a good resource for mending coats. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, there's a huge resource bank and of so over 50. Yep. Absolutely, Maria. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to your research. What else did you find? Oh, Maria, I had a lot of fun. I started out by writing the Australian National Wool Museum in Victoria, because as I said, they purchased this large collection from Ramona, I found out, of Blanket Fever. Now, they gave me Ramona's email. I wanted to find out a few things, but I wanted to find out if the plaid sort of style that we see in Australia and New Zealand is unique to the Southern Hemisphere. And they said it wasn't, but I'm sort of on the fence about that answer. So I'll tell you why later. Okay. So I contacted Ramona and she was great. And she told me that the best way to source information about those blankets is by reading Yaks. And that's what she did. In the Australian National Wool Museum site, you'll see the ads. But also if you go into Pinterest, you'll see that she's put up a lot of these old 1940s, 1950s, 1960s ads advertising different blanket companies. Because we had over 100 mills at one time, wool mills in Australia. In Australia? Yep, 100. That's hard to get your head around these days. Oh, it's phenomenal. In the 40s, it was a major income earner for the economy here. So I talked to her about it and I talked to her about how she started collecting. And she told me that she started collecting because she wanted each child in her family, she wanted them to have their own kind of wool blanket in the car. By the time she got like five or six wool blankets, she really liked the designs. And so she got on a little, you know, kind of like obsession with it. And she went to every op shop in Victoria, most of the ones in Tasmania. I think she even hit New South Wales. And so by then she'd amassed this huge collection, as you sometimes do. You just go off on a bend. And that's why she, you know, she sold a lot of it to the National Wool Museum. She had a lot, but she learned so much. Where real big question was, you know, I know that they started in the 40s. In the 40s and the 50s, you saw a lot of wool blankets being sold to brides. You know, they put them in their hope chest or they yeah. were a gift and they're really heirloom. And then, you know, in the the 60s and the 70s, they started getting brighter. And she said, yeah, that was true. I wanted to find out if certain mills, because mills had their own dyers, and I wanted to find out if they had a signature plaid or colors. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like an artist or even a signature style. And she said, not as much, but we both agreed that the Albany mill in Western Australia was almost always checks, bigger blankets, really beautiful color. She said all of them were checks except for, she said to, she found one that was a child's blanket and an army blanket that was a brown. Why that was really interesting is because then I wrote the Albany Museum and then they sent it on to a librarian in Albany who gave me some more information about the history of the Albany wool mill because they were in operation for a really long time too. 
They were from 1923 to 2002. It's such a remote place in, you know, Albany, Western Australia is remote. And it's interesting that the wool mills, a lot of them shut down in the 70s and 80s, but Albany stayed to 2002 and Waverly, of course, and Launceston is still there. The only mill that we still have. And what they have in common is they're both remote. Yeah. What I learned about remote mills is they had to be more resourceful mm-hmm. and that they were more lean on top management. So their profit margin was bigger, less fat at the top, but also they were more flexible. If you kind of read what the mills had to do, because in 70s, pretty much 80s, people started to go to electric blankets and dunas. So that was gone. So then they went into carpeting. The mills that moved around stayed viable longer. Mm. So it was really fascinating. In the Albany mill, Ryan, who works at this Albany Public Library, sent me a transcript of an oral history interview by someone named Alf Newby. And he worked at the mill from 1929 to 1979 and was the principal dyer for 20 years. Now, that was an amazing oral history that I read. He said they had over 300 employees in their heyday. That's a lot. Yeah. And he could make up his own dyes. He could look at a color and he wouldn't even need to make a sample. He could match it. His knowledge of wool and how the fiber absorbs color. He could do that. Yeah. years of experience. You just can't find that anymore. Oh, yeah, Maria. I mean, even more than that, when he was 14, he started out working in the mill. He worked everywhere. And then by the time he was 40, he was the principal dyer. So he knew everything everywhere in the mill, all the different operations. He said that Anka Paringa, which was that really big mill that we've all heard of in Victoria, well, they were a big fancy mill and they had a huge dye team. And there was just him pretty much when he visited But he said that they used to get experts from England and all that kind of stuff to help them. But he said they were all in Albany. You know, they had to be really creative about making solutions. And so they came up with solutions to problems that no one thought of. And when I was talking to Ramona Blanket Fever, she did say that their dyes are one of the most beautiful. They do a lot of check, but the depth of the color and the quality of the blanket is just exquisite. I was really thrilled to learn that. Oh, and I also learned this from Ryan at the library. Yeah. <laughs> I learned that there's something called an Albany tartan. Okay. Do you know the difference between a, a tartan and a plaid? To me, it sounds the same, but what did you find out, Sheila? Well, I think hopefully Judith will say I'm right. Apparently, a tartan has to be like registered with a clan thing. It has to be registered in Scotland, where a plaid is just checked, but it doesn't have any clan associations or any history to it. At Albany Wool Mill, they had a little pipe band, you know, with bagpipes and everything else. And they had an Albany tartan that they produced. And they had a Highland pipe band. And it was bright red with green, blue, and a bit of yellow. And I found out that Bonnie Prince Charlie wore it in 1745 in Edinburgh to something called the Holly Rood Palace. And he called himself the Prince of Albany when he wore it. <laughs> So isn't that great? The palace is still there. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, so when you went to Fractals, you saw it? Yeah, because we went to Holyrood Palace as part of our other things to do than just go to, than just go to Cyber 50 Fractals. Oh, I wonder if the tartan was up there. I'm sure it would have been. I'll have to do that research. Yeah. 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 I also learned something that, which I I didn't know and you might know, um, that that the difference between worsted and wool. Woolen yarns and worsted yarns. Yes. 
Alf was saying, you know, this brilliant historian, he was saying that, you know, the, the wool industry kind of went up and down according to popularity, but worsted apparently were the fine fibers that had a, a lot more complicated process to make. And they're what you made suits out of and garments out of and any fine wool clothing was made out of worsted. And wool were what they made blankets out of and eventually carpets out of. And it was a much quicker process and a much cruder process. And I didn't know that. I thought that was pretty interesting. Oh, I also forgot to say that I also learned in the very beginning, they tried to, because I think most of the mills got started around the late 1800s or so. And in the very beginning, they had rubbish sheep, apparently in Australia. No one would buy the wool. And so they went off to Spain and they bought some merinos. Bringing animals in at that point in time was probably a lot easier than it is now. Yeah. Well, that was so cool. I had no idea about that. Albany, of course, made a lot of wool for the army and stuff like that. And that's why Ramona Blanket Beaver said she only found one brown blanket. And that was an army thing. Alf told everyone that during the Depression, they had no work because no one could afford to buy anything. And so the government commissioned them to make blankets for both prisons and the indigenous population. And he said that they were the ones they made for the indigenous population were good quality is great and they were big and they were red white with blue stripes red white and blue stripes i couldn't find a picture of that that's really good to know that's the end of the first part of sheila's podcast about using blankets as coating and she's focused on blankets that were made in australia in the next episode sheila discusses the international research she did about blankets many thanks to sheila for putting in the research about blankets made in Australia. This episode of Sober 50 Podcast on Solganized Style was produced by me, Maria Theoharis, with permission of Sheila, sound by bensound.com. If you want to provide a guest post for Sober 50, make sure you direct message Judith and Sandy at Sober 50. You can subscribe to Solganized Style Podcast but with an S not a Z on all good podcast apps. Make sure you go back and listen to our free Sober 50 podcast archive. And if you can, consider supporting the production of this podcast on Patreon. We look forward to joining you in your sewing room next time. Stay safe, everyone.